Welcome to this episode of Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast giving you advice, tips and tools for getting the most out of your research. I'm Thomas Warwick and today I'll be breaking down and explaining five important protein quantification assays, how they work, when they work and when they don't work. Why is accurate protein quantification important? Well, protein quantification is critical if, for example, you're trying to determine a binding constant, measure enzyme kinetics, trying to crystallize it, or if you're preparing samples for a Western blot. Even if you're doing something more qualitative, getting a good idea of how much protein you have will enable you to compare results from one experiment to the next and from one protein to the next. There are lots of ways to measure protein concentration, and each of them has its own advantages and disadvantages. It can be difficult to decide on the best method for your protein, especially considering that even the most humble protein quantification assay uses some pretty sophisticated chemistry that can trip you up, particularly if you're working with detergents. Let's briefly go into five useful assays. Number one, UV vis absorbance at 280 nanometers. Simple, but sometimes unreliable, this protein quantification method estimates the amount of protein by measuring the characteristic absorption of the aromatic residues, tyrosine and tryptophan at 280 nanometers on a UV vis spectrometer. Once you know the absorbance of your protein at 280 nanometers, or A280 for short, as well as its molar extinction coefficient, which you can calculate based upon its primary sequence, you can use the Beer-Lambert law to calculate protein concentration. The Beer-Lambert law states, absorbance A is equal to the molar extinction coefficient epsilon multiplied by the path length of the spectrometer L multiplied by the protein concentration C. The advantages of measuring protein concentration using absorbance at 280 nanometers are that it's a quick method and doesn't require any special reagents. And if you're working with purified protein samples and you measure a complete UVV spectrum rather than just A280, you can also see if there are any soluble aggregates in your sample by looking for absorbance at 230 nanometers. Some of the disadvantages of measuring protein concentration using A280 are that some proteins have no tyrosine or tryptophan residues which can make your calculated protein concentration inaccurate. And to make matters worse, lots of other molecules interfere with this method. Alcohols, certain buffer ions, nucleic acids, all absorb at 280 nanometers, thereby making this measurement non-specific for protein if any of these other molecules are present. If you use DTT in your protein preps, and use A280 to measure protein concentration, then be careful. DTT oxidizes over time, yielding a product that also absorbs at 280 nanometers. This doesn't mean that UVVIS is incompatible with DTT, it just means that you should use a buffer with an accurately known concentration of it. This can be difficult to do, especially if you freeze protein and use it for weeks or months, since you may no longer have the exact buffer to blank against, in which case some of the following techniques might be more useful for you. Number two, the Bradford assay. There are good reasons that the paper first describing the Bradford assay has been cited thousands of times. The Bradford assay is an elegantly simple colorimetric assay for protein quantification. It's based on the interaction between Kumasi Brilliant Blue, that's the stuff in your SDS page gels, and the arginine and aromatic residues within your protein. When the dye binds to these residues, its maximum absorbance shifts from 470 to 595 nanometers. Generally, you measure the absorbance of a series of known concentrations of standard proteins, e.g. bovine serum albumin, BSA, or bovine gamma globulin, BGG, to create a standard curve. Unlike the Foley-Lowry method, the Bradford assay doesn't have a set endpoint, so you have to use this standard curve to back-calculate protein concentration. 
Bradford protein quantification is quick, easy, stable for up to an hour, and isn't affected by the presence of reducing agents in your buffer. So like the UVVIS A280 technique, the Bradford assay depends on the primary sequence of your protein. If your protein doesn't contain a decent number of arginine or aromatic residues, then the dye will not bind to the protein as efficiently, resulting in an underestimate of your protein concentration. And if your standard protein dilutions aren't accurate, then your calculated protein concentration will be off. Also, if for some reason your protein didn't react with the dye as well as your standard proteins, your concentrations can also be incorrect. Furthermore, basic conditions in detergents such as SDS interfere with the dye's ability to bind to proteins, but there are detergent-compatible Bradford reagents. Number three, the biocene coninic acid or BCA assay. Originally developed in 1985, the BCA assay is another colorimetric assay. This two-step assay first makes use of the Bayeret reaction, in which the protein backbone chelates copper two ions and reduces them to copper one ions. In the second step, the copper one ions react with BCA to form a purple colored product that absorbs at 562 nanometers. This entire process takes about 15 to 30 minutes at 37 degrees centigrade. Conveniently, the color intensity is proportional to the amount of protein. And like the Bradford assay, each sample's intensity must be compared to a standard curve based on a series of known protein standards. So the same pitfalls apply. Because the peptide backbone is involved in the reaction, the BCA assay is less affected by differences in the amino acid composition. Additionally, BCA reagents are not sensitive to detergents and denaturants, so it's okay to have those in your buffer. The presence of reducing agents in your buffer can interfere with the assay, but there are reducing agent compatible kits available. While slower than the Bradford assay, the BCA assay is a great option if your protein samples contain up to 5% detergents. It also has a more uniform response to different proteins than the Bradford assay, although it's still strongly influenced by the presence of tyrosine, tryptophan and cysteine amino acids. And because it relies on copper for the first reaction, the chemicals that react with copper can also interfere with the BCA assay. Number four, the Folene-Lowry assay. Similar to the BCA assay, this good old-fashioned colorimetric assay also involves two steps, one of which is the Bayeret reaction. First, it complexes copper with the nitrogen in your protein. Second, the complex tyrosine and tryptophan react with folene Schakalto reagent, which is phosphomolybdenotungstic acid, to give an intense blue-green colour, which absorbs at 650 to 750 nanometers. This blue colour intensifies during the 30-minute incubation period at room temperature. One advantage of the folene-Lowry assay lies in the flexibility to measure any wavelength between 650 and 750 nanometers with little loss of intensity. Despite this, it's best to measure at 750 nanometers because few other substances absorb at this wavelength. However, it's important to remember that, unlike the BCA assay, a folene-Lowry standard curve is non-linear. Another advantage is that it's an endpoint assay with a stable result, meaning that you can estimate the amount of protein from one assay by comparing it with the previous standard curve. Unfortunately, this assay isn't compatible with lots of common chemicals. EDTA, TRIS, carbohydrates, reducing agents such as DTT, beta-mercaptoethanol, as well as potassium and magnesium ions are all incompatible. Annoyingly, the folene Schakalto reagent must be added to each sample precisely at the end of a 10-minute incubation period. If you have lots of samples to measure, this can limit the number of samples you can assay in one run, and you may need to practice to get consistent results. Not great for those of us who like to go big or go home. Number five, the Keldahl method. The Keldahl method measures nitrogen in a protein sample after it's been converted to ammonia through a series of terrifying steps 
involving heated sulfuric acid, steam distillation, and back titration with sodium hydroxide. After all that work, you weigh out the purified nitrogen and, by assuming your original protein sample was 16% nitrogen, back calculate the total amount of protein. The strength of this method lies in its precision and reproducibility. It's used to assay protein content in food, soils, wastewater, and fertilizers. Hazardous and time-consuming, however, the Kjeldahl method requires at least one gram of sample, making it highly impractical for most molecular biologists, especially if, like me, you struggle to produce microgram amounts of your protein of interest. In addition, this method measures non-protein nitrogen as well as nitrogen in proteins, so it may not give an accurate measure of true protein content, not to mention the use of some dodgy chemicals. And there we have it, the basics of five critical protein quantification assays. Check out the corresponding article for a table summary of these assays, and check out the description for links to related articles and resources. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get more help and advice from mentors at your bench side. Are you always on the go, but still seeking valuable insights to advance your research? Well, look no further than Listen In, the podcast from Bite Size Bio that offers the benefits of webinars in a portable format. With webinars featuring leading researchers and commercial specialists discussing techniques like CRISPR-Cas9 and microscopy. With Listen In, you can tap into their expertise and drive your research project forward efficiently and productively, no matter where you are. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Listen In in your podcast app to subscribe.